podcast is a calm, reasoned conversation about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Calm and reasoned? Yeah. Calm. Okay. Welcome to the Olympia Standard. Before I get started, I just wanted to mention that this is going on two years of recording, and we are now at episode 50. I mean, I know for me, it feels like quite the accomplishment. Yeah, all yeah, right. Yeah. Here we are. <laughs> so we've been, so, and we've been focusing on the election for the past couple of months, and now your ballot's in your hands. Remember to get them in the ballot box or the mailbox, postage is paid, by election day on November 5th. If you're running late, a ballot box is going to be your best bet. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service is great. We love them, but they um you need to make sure you get that postmark in on by election day for your for your vote to count so encourage your friends to vote and remind them that they can now register up to 8 p.m on election day at the auditor's office awesome all right and today we're gonna take a break from all of the election work that we've been doing Uh, right now we're going to have a conversation about immigration Generally, the attention for issues of immigration is focused at our nation's southern border. We want to help our listeners understand how this issue unfolds in our community. With us in the studio today are Stephanie Powell, who is an immigration attorney based in Olympia, and Alejandra Hunt, who works with Stephanie and serves as the vice president on the board of Cielo. And I'll let you define that acronym for the listeners. Um, And you're both part of a group called Strengthening Sanctuary. Uh, Will you please take a moment and tell us a bit about yourselves and your work? All right. Um, Well, I've been an immigration attorney in um, Olympia for about 14 years. And and this is Stephanie here. (laughs) Thank you. And then um, directed a refugee resettlement immigration program in Kentucky for about 14 years. So that brings us up to 28. Alejandra and I started working together um, probably about nine, ten years ago. The last three years, we have been involved in a lot of advocacy work. Yes, I have worked um, with the immigrant with Stephanie for about, as she said, ten years, and also involved in other groups, uh, especially Cielo, which is a nonprofit organization here in the Olympia area. And what does Cielo stand for? It's Centro Integral Educativo Latino de Olympia, yeah. and um, also a part of the Strengthening Sanctuary group, who's doing a lot of uh, work in behalf of immigrants in here in Olympia and the vicinities. Yes. All right, and we'll get into more of all of that. So let's start at the 10,000-foot perspective and build some context. Tell us what has been happening with national policy around immigration, or as it has been called, the invisible wall. How have things changed, and what are the implications? Okay. Well, it's no secret um, that Trump's administration has attacked undocumented immigrants, both at the border and internally. I think what might be surprising to some folks is that through both small and large policy shifts, he's attacking legal immigration in the United States. We call it the invisible wall, a comprehensive set of actions slowing and decreasing legal immigration to and in the United States. We might want to ask why. Some people believe it's because we have shifting demographics in our country. And so this administration has determined that deportations alone will not halt the demographic changes taking place in the U.S. So the administration is desperately and aggressively attempting to reshape our legal immigration system as a whole. And what does that look like? You know, we can look at the cruel policies at the border, family separations, the asylum ban, the third country asylum applications first, the remain in Mexico policy, and the attempt to refuse bond hearings. All of these policies at the border have created chaos and has totally undermined our U.S. asylum law. But it's important to remember that overall, compared to a decade ago, the number of immigrants arriving at the southern border is lower. However, the number of families from Central America fleeing persecution and violence has increased. And then if we move away from the border and move inward, what we're seeing is an expansion of removal or deportation priorities, an expansion of a program called expedited removal. 
So as a little background, under President Obama, although deportations were at a record high, we had removal priorities, and those priorities included things like engagement in terrorist activities, people who had felonies, three or more misdemeanors, maybe someone with a significant misdemeanor, such as a DUI, and people engaged in criminal gang activity. At the same time, we also had something called prosecutorial discretion, where an immigration officer, if they came across an individual who was undocumented, they could, within their discretion, determine that this person should be released and not placed in removal proceedings. Maybe it was a pregnant woman. Maybe it was um, the only wage earner for a household. And we also had prosecutorial discretion in the courts where if an individual appeared before an immigration judge, the judge could close the case and release the individual because they were not a priority for removal. After President Trump um, came to power, that one of the first things he did was he released a memo that mentioned those policies by name, the removal priorities and prosecutorial discretion policies. He rescinded and replaced them with a policy that states, and I'd like to read that, Effective immediately, Department of Homeland Security shall faithfully execute U.S. immigration laws against all removable individuals and will no longer exempt classes or categories of people from enforcement. So it took away discretion. It directed Department of Homeland Security uh, employees to arrest, apprehend, and initiate enforcement proceedings against anyone in the United States. And remember, we have 10 to 11 million people in the United States who are have either overstayed their visas or or entered the country without proper documents. So now everyone is a priority from removal. And as an out-of-status or undocumented individual, even folks with no previous engagement with law enforcement, those folks are now at the same level of removal priority as a convicted felon or a terrorist. We also have what I mentioned earlier, the um, extension or expansion, sorry, of expedited removal. It's an attempt to bypass immigration courts altogether. So it's a rapid deportation system where an ICE officer, if they encounter an individual, that officer can apprehend, cast judgment, and remove from the United States that individual usually within 48 hours. The person um, is denied the right to an attorney, denied a fair day in court, essentially is denied all um, rights to due process. So that is for folks that they encounter that cannot prove on the spot that they've been in the country for more than two years. Mm. So if you're on the street and you encounter an ICE officer and you answer their questions and you can't prove on the spot that you've been there more than two years and they've determined that you're undocumented, within 48 hours you can be removed from the United States. And that is not taking into consideration, you know, your family members, your, your, your employment, all of the strong social and economic ties you might have to this country. We can also bring it down to the attack on legal immigration. So what I've discussed so far are folks that are in the country maybe as overstays, um, visa overstays, or it's undocumented. The attack on legal immigration would include um, the reduction in refugee admissions. In 2017, we had a ceiling of 54,000 refugees that could enter the United States and and seek resettlement and support from communities. It's from all over the world, From all over the world, yes. In 2018, that was dropped to 45,000. In 2019, they dropped it further to 30,000, which is the lowest number of refugees being permitted to enter the United States since Congress created the modern refugee resettlement program back in the 80s. We also are seeing a slowing of the lawful immigration process, and I'm talking about applications for legal permanent resident status and citizenship. So they've dramatically slowed down and almost halted. There are millions of cases now that are backlogged, and these are not removal cases. These are people applying for legal status in the United States. Um, We're seeing unnecessary interview requests, burdensome requests for additional evidence. I've been an immigration attorney, like I said, for 28 years. I've never had so many requests for additional evidence. Um, They have proposed that they may start denying applications that are missing evidence, like a birth certificate, if it's not filed with the hundreds of pages of evidence that you file with an initial submission. They may deny, and with that denial, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services may also start attaching notices to appear 
<clears throat> for removal or for deportation. So these two policies combined make it very risky to file an application for an immigration benefit. And I think it's really important to point out that Congress intended for USCIS to function as a service-oriented benefits entity, one that was tasked with efficiently and fairly processing immigration cases, not a direct pipeline to removal. Mm-hmm. And sometime early on in the administration, USCIS removed the language, a nation of immigrants, from its mission statement mm-hmm. and replaced it with protect the homeland. And I think that said a lot about what was to come. Wow. We also have the third version of the nakedly discriminatory Muslim ban, which still stands. And so, and again, we're talking about legal immigration. Let's say the spouse of a U.S. citizen or parents of U.S. citizens from Yemen, Iran, Libya, Chad, Somalia, and Syria, they are not permitted to enter the United States. So that Muslim ban is still in existence. We have... um, the Termination of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, or DACA. There are 700,000 students, young adults, in the United States who entered the country as children and under Obama were able to apply for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, or DACA, which gave them permission to live and work in the United States. Um, they have a, a work permit and apply for a Social Security number. And this program was meant to provide protection to youth. So some people who um, applied for DACA have no memory whatsoever of their home country. They were brought across um, as, as babies in some cases. Some of, some of our clients had no idea they were undocumented until their parents told them why they couldn't go on the school trip uh, across the border mm. into Canada or on a school trip to Europe, right? And the parents said, you can't because you, you're not a U.S. citizen. You're undocumented. So some of these kids have thought all their entire, you know, their lives that they were citizens, that this was their country. They claim this country. They're just as American as you or me. So one of the first things that President Trump did was he terminated DACA for those 700,000-plus students and young adults across the country. Um, we have seven, we have over 17,000 of those students or DACA recipients in the state of Washington. And luckily, the courts intervened and said, don't terminate. Let the people who have status continue to apply for their renewals every two years. And let's let the Supreme Court decide whether or not um, the president legally terminated this program or not. Another program that they've terminated is um, temporary protected status for over 300,000 people in the country, um, primarily from El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, Nicaragua, Nepal, and Sudan. Of these 300,000 people, they have approximately 250,000 U.S. citizen children. So some of these folks from El Salvador have been in the United States for 20 years with temporary protected status. So they have homes, they have long-term employment, they have families, and this administration very rapidly terminated the status of those 300,000 people. And again, the courts intervened, and this is headed to the Supreme Court as well for a decision. Um, Another program is the Denaturalization Task Force. Um, where the Justice Department is receiving cases from the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services to denaturalize, take away the citizenship of individuals. Um, And although I believe to date only a a little over 100 cases have been sent, the fear that that sends out to the community is immense. If I think that I might, as a naturalized citizen, somehow lose my citizenship— I may not apply. Legal mm-hmm. permanent residents are yeah. deciding not to apply. They've heard that there's a denaturalization task force, and so they're a little fearful of applying. And, you know, you wonder about the intent of that program. If we're, if the administration and maybe the Republican Party, if I may, are fearful of you the may. shift of <laughs> the demographics in the country, what they're fearing, I believe, are more Democratic voters. And so if you hold up citizenship applications, you're holding up voters, right? Yeah. If you're making people afraid to apply for citizenship, right? So um, and they also just recently announced within the last month that they're going to start reviewing the um, social media accounts of all citizenship applicants. Wow. Right? Okay. 
And the last thing I guess I'll mention is that, um, again, another final attack on legal immigration is that the president has proposed to curtail family immigration by immediately cutting it in half and eliminating many of the categories. So as a U.S. citizen, I can petition to bring to the United States my parents, my spouse, my children, and my brothers and sisters. As a permanent resident, I can petition to bring to the United States my spouse and my children who are single and unmarried or who are single or unmarried. He wants to cut those categories and limit eliminate some of the categories and he has proposed an alternative immigration system based on a point-based system which prioritizes education and employment. In my mind, again, doing this 28 years, what I've seen, if you have a family-based system, it's a humane immigration system that contributes to stability, prosperity, and stronger communities because when people immigrate in, they have a group of people waiting to receive them, to support them, to sign their kids up for school, to open the bank account, to help fund jobs, and so forth and so on. It's a really strong system. Um, Eliminating that and encouraging just basically white, educated, wealthy immigrants will not serve the country. That's a good amount of context. (laughs) I actually learned quite a bit because I I don't very much into local issues, but national stuff, there's just so much going on. So thank you for for providing that context. Um, Now let's bring it closer to home and we'll talk about the state of Washington and what that's meant in the state. Two years ago, a Republican activist in Pacific County described ISIS operations there as ripping families apart. Um, And the term disappearing people has been used. Um, What impacts are we seeing in our state? Yes, well, the the impacts are are real and they are difficult to um, quantify as far as what is doing to uh to to the families you know it it's um it's a situation that it's provoking for families to be in fear to be fearful to to um have mental health issues uh, even physical illnesses um the the story from pacific uh, pacific county was just one of many that are around and um the separation of families it's um, it's an issue that it, it's it's like another invisible issue that you know we we sometimes think is not happening anywhere clor- close to us or the people that we know, but one of the things that happens you know, families are not they're not very open to share things or or that one of the things that happens is that a lot of the families in in the U.S. and in a state and here in Olympia are mixed status families. Yes. Where there is one member of the family that is, doesn't doesn't have a immigration status, it it doesn't just affect that person; it affects everybody in the in in the family in the in the community. And I did bring uh, found some facts about the state, and I found them on the American Immigration Council website. And so it's it's a great it's uh, they have it right down to our, to the state. Um, and some of the numbers that they have is um, more than 45% of immigrants in Washington Washington are naturalized U.S. citizens. 2015, 980,150 immigrants comprised 13.7% of the state's population. Over 170,000 U.S. citizens in Washington live with at least one family member who is undocumented. Mm. Mm. 351,016 People in Washington, including 151,209 born in the U.S. in the United States, live with at least one undocumented family member. And this is also from 20, 10, 2010 to 2014. These are the numbers. More than 16,000 deferred actions for childhood arrivals, which are DACA recipients, live in Washington state. An additional 10,000 residents of the state satisfied all but the educational requirements for DACA and another 7,000 would be eligible uh, as they grew older. Mm-hmm. So it just means that we have a lot of people, a lot of children that uh, will qualify for DACA in the future, or even now they do, but they, they didn't meet their requirements to have the benefit of, of DACA. These people are around us. You know, we immigrants are everywhere. Sometimes we, we don't realize that um, a person might be undocumented. I mean, like, what does it look like? What does an undocumented person look like, right? We don't know. It's just 
it, it's part and it's always been part of the culture, part of the of the U.S. history. Right now, it feels like this. I call it the war on immigrants because it has been relentless. Mm-hmm. Since the moment that Trump was in office, he he declared that, you know, immigrants, especially from Mexico, were rapists. So uh, I believe that his propaganda machine, um, where he's able to to say that immigrants are, are, are criminals, that, that immigrants are here to take what's yours, that... You know, it all this misinformation and to create fear and to put people against each other. You mm-hmm. know, to the to dehumanize immigrants, people like we. You know, we have to say, oh well, illegal illegal aliens. But I think it's a, it's a way of dehumanizing people. They're human beings, and they're here. The same reason what people were here at the beginning of the uh, when this nation was formed to look for a better life. For your for your family, for your children, for mm-hmm. yourself. So I, I think it's it's an old story that now is new because it's so polarized. So let's talk about operations in Washington State. The state is home to an immigration detention center in Tacoma, and a deportation flights are leaving from Yakima. What do you want people to know about these operations? So the U.S. government's current policy of choice, of course, is to lock up in jails or detention centers asylum seekers, including families with young children and documented individuals, many who have had no interactions whatsoever with law enforcement. Many times these jail facilities exacerbate the trauma that asylum seekers have already faced, and they definitely impede everyone's access to legal counsel. You'll find in these detention centers, and I'll get to the Northwest Detention Center specifically in a moment, but you'll find in these detention centers pregnant women, folks with mental illness, physical illness, survivors of domestic violence, torture, and human trafficking, along with members of other vulnerable groups. And they wear jumpsuits and spend their days and nights behind bars, many times for nothing more than civil violation of immigration laws. They're not treated with basic dignity or respect. In Tacoma, we have the Tacoma Detention Center, and it's run by the GEO Group, which is a for-profit contractor. It holds over 1,500 people. GEO has lobbied government officials pushing for stricter immigration policies and greater levels of detention. In ICE's 2020 budget, they propose to expand detention in our area by more than 50%. In order to do so, they need to expand the detention center in Tacoma. If we don't shut it down, it will continue to grow. And as long as it exists, GEO will seek to expand and ICE will seek to continue to fill the beds. We hope that our region joins the national strategy to challenge the existence of these centers, as well as the expansion. You talk about like the um, the banks withdrawing yes, from funding. Yes, that's right. Okay, so that's, I remember reading yeah, that. That's yeah. part of the national strategy. So some people will say, okay, if you close down this detention center, well, they're just going to open another one somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that might be true unless we strategize and we join hands with other advocacy groups and states and legislators and say, no, you know, let's, let's not let this happen. We can't stop it. And before the 80s, rarely was anyone jailed for immig- civil immigration violations. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way, right? It is just that way or now. Or jailed just for seeking asylum. Right, right, mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. right, yeah. exactly. That's just... Yeah, and suddenly you become a criminal. Case. Right. Yeah. And if you look at between Oregon and Washington, so we have we have similar immigration populations. I think Oregon's population is about 10% immigrants. Washington is about 14%. Oregon does not have a detention center. Now, they use jails to detain people, right? But they don't have a detention center. So in Washington State, because we have a detention center, we have two and a half times more people arrested and detained, huh. right? Wow. Oh, wow. Because so, they have to feed the beast. Exactly. That's what a line I have in here later. <laughs> feed Sorry. the beast. Jump your line. Like, well, I want to use it again. Don't worry. I'll use it again. <laughs> It's um, good with the metaphors. So the city of Tacoma is is fighting expansion of the center, but you know recently they declined to pull the the contract because it's a federal contract and they say their hands are tied and they can't pull the contract to the detention center. But they are fighting expansion. A week ago, two hundred detainees started an eight day hunger strike. Um, and they're striking against, you know, the quality of medical care, the quality of food, treatment by guards, and access to legal representation. 
In the 15 years since that detention center has been in existence, two people have died in the center. One just last year. The person's name was Morgan Sanamar, and they died um, after participating in a hunger strike, and I believe that death is still being investigated. The Tacoma Police Department, they've reported that they received 911 calls from the detention center pretty regularly. Over 300 calls have been received since 2018. From people who are detained? From people who are detained. Wow. And they have gone to investigate and have, and have responded to about 25 assaults, including sexual assaults and suicide attempts. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, and then you have to think about this. If the argument... For detention is fear that an individual will not show up for removal hearing. That's basically what the argument is. We've got to detain them because they're not going to show up for their their immigration removal hearing. There are alternatives to detention to ensure an individual's compliance with immigration proceedings, and one is called community-based case management. And this is where um, the government would contract with a nonprofit organization that uses a case management model. I, I cannot tell you how beautiful I think this idea is because let's say an individual overstays their visa um, by 10 years and they're eligible for something called cancellation of removal where they can go before a judge and say, can you cancel my removal? I've been here more than 10 years. I'm a good person and my family will suffer extreme hardship if I'm deported. Well, if you are in the detention center trying to prepare for that case and fight that case and you're under the, the stress and trauma of being detained away from your family, worried about how they're feeding themselves and paying for the house and the car and all the other expenses, that's very, very difficult to prepare. If you are in a community-based case management system, you are not in jail you have been assigned to a case manager who explains to you what all of the immigration benefits are and how to apply for them. Make sure you understand what your rights are. Make sure you understand uh, your due process um, expectations and kind of lead you through the system. Make sure They would work with an immigration attorney to represent you. It's a, a much more holistic, friendly, respectful process. So there, that exists, and Chicago has a wonderful model of that case management system where they're trying to um, keep people from going into the detention centers and rather stay with their families and work through the deportation process with a case manager. Um, It's been proven that immigrants are more likely to engage and comply with their immigration proceedings if they feel they've been through a humane, fair, and efficient process that was explained to them throughout and not while in constant risk of detention and removal. I think I mentioned that prior to the 80s, the United States government rarely jailed individuals for violations of the Civil Immigration Code. Since the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, in 2003, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE spending has more than doubled from $3.3 billion to the $7.6 billion budget that they have today, and much of that funding goes towards one thing, detention of immigrants in for-profit detention centers. So our immigration detention system has quickly metastasized, and it's fueled by profit and fear. It's a sprawling network of wasteful prisons. The number of individuals locked up in immigration detention has skyrocketed from an average of 7,000 per day in 1994 to more than 50,000 per day in 2019, again, most in these for-profit centers. Wow. And if you look at the—if you're just interested in the cost, right— If we're looking at the average daily cost of detaining an immigrant in a detention center, it's about $208 a day. If you're looking at the average daily cost of having an alternative to detention contract, such as the case management model, you're looking at $5 to $6 per person per day, right? A significant savings to taxpayers. Mm -hmm. If we can't move from that. We have to ask ourselves who's profiting from this, right? Yeah. If we can't move towards a more humane system, someone's profiting. Who's profiting and how do we stop it? And the banks, like you said, withdrawing their their financial um, support is huge. Yeah. It's huge. And the more financial pressure they receive, the more pressure they receive from advocacy groups and hopefully from city uh, councils and state legislators – 
you know, the more likelihood this chances we can actually get this thing, these things closed down, these monsters, right? Closed down. The beast. The beast. The beast. <laughs> and let's talk about feeding the beast is Yakima. So the, the airport in Yakima. So the King County International Airport located at Boeing Field used to provide ICE flights, right? The um, city manager decided they were no longer going to do that along with others. So they closed that down. And so ICE all of a sudden had to look around and find out, well, who in the state of Washington will continue to provide those flights? And Yakima agreed to do so. All right. So Yakima is now the only airport that I'm aware of that provides flights for Immigration Customs Enforcement. And it provides flights in two ways. It provides flights from other jurisdictions. So one of the things we have to also be aware of is that these detention centers have quotas and the guaranteed quotas, right? Mm. A certain number of their beds will be filled. I believe the detention center in Tacoma has an 800-bed quota. So if you have all these these for-profit detention centers across the country with quotas, and this one is down 400 and this is up 200, they're going to fly people from here to here to fill that guaranteed quota so that the beast is being fed what it was guaranteed, right? You have people being flown from the border to um, the Northwest Detention Center. You have people being flown from other states, other detention centers to help fill this quota. Then you also have people that, so they are flown to Yakima and then taken oftentimes by armed guards and buses over to the detention center. And then you also have the detention center after a judge has ruled that someone is deportable from the United States or someone has signed their voluntary departure, voluntary deportation papers, whatever, and they're going to be deported from the United States, they leave the detention center or taken to Yakima and then flown out of Yakima for deportation. So Yakima is a huge part of the detention and deportation machine. A couple of things. Yes. Yakima is a publicly owned airport owned by the city of Yakima. Yes. Okay. Yes. Just wanted to make that yes. point. Same yes. as same as Boeing Field. Right. It's not a private entity. Right. Second thing, when you're removing somebody from their place of detention, is it easier or harder for them to fight their possible deportation? When you're removing some, when once they're removed, it's just about impossible. Oh, right. But right. you mean from switching from one, from one place to another? Oh, well, I'm talking I'm, about the what yes, the, because let's say you're in a detention center. And you have family members who can bring documents. You have an attorney representing you. You have access to your employer. You know, you, it's just a little bit easier to access documents in support of your deportation claim. Um, if you are all of a sudden moved to a detention center in Georgia, where you don't have family members visiting you, you don't have your attorney visiting you. I think there is a, and I, I'm, I hope I'm not mistaken, but I think it is in Georgia, there are no immigration attorneys within a couple of hundred mile radius of this detention center. So no one gets represented, right? And, There's and an I, intention there. And I think it's a current strategy of the administration to actually move people to isolated regions or areas mm-hmm. so that they don't have the resources to fight their cases. Yeah. It's actually happening. And I'm sure they're coming into these communities and like, well, this, this detention center will provide a lot of jobs. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what they did in Tacoma, right? Yeah. That's how they sold it. Right. Yeah. And then right. we also know that these these companies, these private um, for, 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 for profit um, companies are some of the biggest um, donors for the Trump administration. So we know what they're getting the uh, they're award, they're getting awarded those contracts. Yeah. Yep. And so we know that Yakima derives revenue from the ICE's operation at their airport. The city manager cited these finances as motivation for continuing these activities. But there are members of the community that are saying, you know, these profits come at an an awful steep price. And I just want to shout out to the Yakima Immigrant Response Network, who is monitoring the flights. And they said that since May of 2019, there have been 23 flights and counting. Um, They're called ICE air flights, and over 1,900 people have passed through, either being deported or being sent to the the detention center. It's not all bad in Washington State, though. I mean, that's all bad. I'm sorry. (laughs) That is all terrible. You You did. What was good about that? It's not all bad in Washington State (laughs) in terms of um, action that's taking place. Um, So last session, the legislature legislature approved the Keep Washington Working Act. Um, Tell us about this new law. Okay. Alan, do you want to start? Um, Yes. Uh, 
Can I also give you some uh, figures that I really think would be really helpful for people to know? Yeah, absolutely. Is, yeah. Uh, immigrants in Washington have contributed billions of dollars in taxes. Immigrant-led household in the state paid $5.7 billion in federal taxes and $2.4 billion in state and local taxes. It, that was 2014. I don't, they don't have the more recent ones. Undocumented immigrants in Washington paid an estimated $316.6 million and state and local taxes in 2014. Their contribution rise to 348 millions if they could receive legal status. So if they get, get a status, they will be paying more. Uh, DACA, DACA recipients paid uh, estimated 51.3 million in state local taxes in 2016. Immigrants are contributors to the economy of our state. You know, it's just that there are things that we don't really very much hear about. We don't hear about it very much at all or have yeah. different understandings that uh, because of the propaganda machine, we hear that uh, people are here only to take and not to give. But it's not it's not the truth. Well, and not to mention, like, you know, them as people being, you know, skilled Exactly. In ways, in the way, in, mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and, and, and also just being members of communities. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, <laughs> since you said that, uh, immigrant workers were most numerous in the following industries. Healthcare and social assistance, 91,000. So they're, they're uh, healthcare, manufacturing, trade, uh, professional science and technicians and, and technical services. Uh, and uh, accommodation and food and food services. So the, you know, there's the 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 industries that really depend on on immigrants. There, so there's several. Mm-hmm. That and that's why I keep Washington working, working was so important, right? It's funny because right. when somebody first asked me about that yeah. law, I wouldn't have pegged it as an immigration. Right. right. And I think that may have <laughs> yes. been intentional. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So it was created because federal agencies such as Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, Customs and Border Protection, they relied on local resources, so local law enforcement agencies, to investigate civil immigration violations. So across the country... Um, basically, the federal immigration authorities would contact the local law enforcement and say, hey, help us, help us, you know, help us enforce federal immigration law. And it diverted local resources. So if your police department is working on federal immigration law cases, civil violations of federal immigration law, they're not doing other things that, that benefits the community. So it diverted local resources and taxpayer dollars away from local public safety issues. And it also discouraged the immigrant population from coming forth and working with law enforcement. A fearful community is not a community that's going to come forth if they're victims of a crime, they may not call the police, right? If they're afraid that the police are going to ask them about their immigration status. If they're a witness to a crime, they may not show up in court to testify if they're afraid that ICE is going to be sitting in the courthouse or the judge or the uh, prosecutor is going to ask them about their immigration status. They may not go to the courthouse and ask for a um, protection order if they're fearful because of their immigration status. So a fearful percentage of our population does not benefit any of us, right? So Keep Washington Working was passed that says pretty much we're going to disentangle local law enforcement from federal immigration enforcement. And I think it's important to note that nothing in federal law requires local law enforcement to participate in immigration enforcement. So um, we are now free of that and working towards that. It became effective May 21st uh, and slowly but surely you know, jurisdictions are working towards that. And it applies to Washington State Patrol, county sheriff's offices, police departments, jails, departments of correction, and school resource officers. And what is it that they're prohibited from doing? They're prohibited to ask in place of birth, nationality. Um, immigration status. Immigration status. Right. Right. Uh, anything that might give them the uh, notion that you are an immigrant. So mm-hmm. those questions are not permitted. How has the impl- implementation of this law posed any challenges for local jurisdictions? The University of Washington Center for Human Rights recently released a report how some local county offices proactively 
work with immigration officials, including, and I'm quoting from this now, formal agreements to share court dockets, sharing of information about defendants, including court dates at the request of information officers, and proactive flagging of specific defendants for review by immigration enforcement. What can you say about local jurisdictions that aren't complying? Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's best to start with the arrest of the individual at the courthouse yeah, to kind of yeah, lead we, into yeah, this, We definitely right? have that question we here, had, and we'll yeah. just jump ahead and start bringing okay. it real local yeah. with that. And then kind of go local and expand a little. But um, we know that an individual was arrested at the local courthouse by ICE officials. Yeah, so that was a Thurston June, County courthouse. At the, yes, yeah, so sorry. June 20th. Thank yep. you. June 20th, yeah. Thurston <laughs> County courthouse on the courthouse grounds. And the probation manager who um, immediately wrote a report stated that um, he witnessed an individual being pretty much tackled by three, wrestled to the ground by three individuals. And he did not know who the three men were that were wrestling the individual. He did, after a while, in observing, see a badge and then some uh, firearms and at least two of the individuals they handcuffed the gentleman, put him in a white unmarked car, and left. And what what this incident has done, now this happens often, I would say, in some jurisdictions in the state of Washington. Grant County, for example, has ice, an ice presence just about daily in the courthouse, right? We do not, as far as we know. What we don't know is how often this happens because sometimes they just come in, they come out, Right. They wait for someone. They know that they have a hearing that day. The person walks out of the courthouse. They say their name. They turn around. They put them in the car, and they're gone. So there may not be a scuffle. You know, there may not be a report filed because no one really saw it happen. But this one was quite a scuffle. A report was filed. And what it's done is it's made the courthouse think about their policy. What is their policy? We don't know what the new policy is going to be or even if they're going to actually provide new policy. But there was a uh, stakeholders conversation. Uh, Judges were upset because they had no idea that ICE was on the premises. They didn't even know what was happening when they were questioned about it. Um, So we hope that a new policy will come out. The other thing that has happened is it's made people look at a possible statewide court rule. And in that statewide court rule, they're thinking about the civil arrest privilege, which is an old English common law privilege, which protects individuals from civil arrest while traveling to, attending, or returning from a court. Individuals, hmm. individuals like, regardless of regardless. your status as a yes, citizen. Or, absolutely. Because, okay. again, you want people to show up in court. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Either as witnesses or to defend themselves. You or, want or people. Or if they're fleeing uh, domestic violence. Exactly. And protection. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you can have that, if we can invoke, you know, at, a, at the state level, a court rule, a state court rule that that um, provides the civil arrest privilege protection, that would be great. The other thing that's happening is there was a memorandum that was put out by Immigration Customs Enforcement in October 2011 called the Sensitive Locations Memorandum that um, uh, encouraged Immigration and Customs Enforcement folks not to engage in enforcement actions at what what was determined to be sensitive locations. That would be schools, hospitals, institutions of worship, public religious ceremonies such as funerals and weddings, um, public demonstrations such as marches, rallies, and parades. And it's been suggested that courthouses should be included. Mm -hmm. It's just a memorandum, so it's not a a lot of protection, but, you know, that has been suggested that either it be included in the memorandum or that something happened at the federal federal level. There was federal legislation proposed to try to codify a sensitive location federally, right, sensitive location policy federally, uh, that would include courthouses. It hasn't hasn't gone anywhere yet, but it's possible that it could. So what we're finding, I'm trying not to talk about some things that are coming later, but we have this group, (laughs) Strengthening Sanctuary, and um, I won't go into great detail about that because I will in a minute, but Strengthening Sanctuary (laughs) has a committee that is working with law enforcement to, um, one, make sure before before Keep Washington Working was passed, just to, to review their policies and procedures and how they impact immigrants in our community. And we had some amazing things happen. Uh, the Olympia Police Department 
because of the sanctuary city status, which we'll yeah. talk about in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> the police department. You can also stopped. just feel free to go into it now, and I can manage the questions as we go through. <laughs> they stopped uh, asking about place of birth and nationality yeah. when they when they fingerprinted an individual, because when you're arrested and you're fingerprinted, that information is sent to the federal government. All federal government agencies, you think of FBI, you might as well think of Immigration Customs Enforcement. They kind of troll, they, they look at that <laughs> and they, they look at someone's name, someone's place of birth, and they might send an officer down to interview the person in jail to determine whether or not they're here legally in the country, right? No. And someone may not know their right not to answer that question because they have the right not to answer that question. And so by removing those categories from the fingerprints, um, that information from the fingerprints that added a little level of protection. So we've had some really great conversations. I think it's the sheriff's office we're most concerned with right now, but we did meet with the prosecutor, um, the prosecutor's office. The sheriff is saying, I need some guidance on how to do this. Mm-hmm. And, That's the, fair. <laughs> and the attorney general has said, you know, I'll give you a year. I, no, the attorney general has said, Within a year, we will create model policies. And some people are saying, I'm going to wait for the model policies, right? Yeah. Some law enforcement groups, and you can see why. They don't want to violate the law, but they're not sure what to do. And I think our sheriff has said, I would like to wait for model policies, but I'll be willing to uh, go by whatever the prosecutor's office said. So the prosecutor's office is working with the sheriff's office to make sure they're, they are in compliance with Keep Washington working and not in violation. And we trust that they will do the right thing. A- anything to follow up with um, specifically on the county courthouse issue? Let's see. So be, oh, is it just I'm, not, kinda, I'm it, just it, thinking it's, it's just given the courthouse an opportunity to write their own policy. It is being that incident is actually being looked at um, as a model for the state and what some ACLU, uh, Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, and um, the Defenders Association are kind of looking at that case and uh, trying to determine, okay, what kind of policy should be in place at our courthouse yeah. statewide? Um, the attorney general's office uh, is looking at possibly uh, is considering filing a lawsuit mm-hmm. against ICE because of that, mm-hmm. because of that, the way that was managed, is. right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And there's, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, there is that recent lawsuit that was uh, Massachusetts um, won. Yes. And is with the same is it the same thing where there was individuals who were arrested at the court and now court is essentially now um sensitive location. Basically is the same. Huh. So that that's probably that, that's what the AG's office are looking into, something similar. So that, that would be something that if it's not in one way we can maybe get in another another way. But hopefully trying to keep that as a, in a place where ICE can't arrest people because of a civil matter. Right. I remember when we talked um, before this recording, you had made a comment about how, you know, this was a highly visible arrest yes. because the person fought. Um, mm-hmm. But it yeah. could th- this could be happening more often where somebody yes. gets a tap on a shoulder and gets escorted to a van and right. nobody right. even knows it happened. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. And it does. What, what ICE is doing, we know they're doing, is they, they go into the courtrooms they're looking at people, listening to, you know, the name of the person. They come out, they say the name of a person, and people turn around and answers to their name. Yeah. And they are questioned, and if people don't know that they have the right to, to not say anything, the Fifth Amendment and Fourth Amendment, both are of the Constitution, also apply to uh, documented and undocumented people. So if you don't know that you have the right to not say anything or to incriminate yourself, then you probably are going to get arrested because you're giving uh, officers probable cause. Got it. So you mentioned the Olympia is a sanctuary city. That happened shortly after the 2016 election. sure did. And you mentioned the change in police protocol. Right, Um, right. Have other things come from that, or are there other things that need to come from that to a uh, do you mind yeah. if I give a little background on the yes, sanctuary? Yeah, Just please. a little. So, yeah, you know, during um, Donald Trump's campaign, he made it very, very clear what he felt uh, about immigrants and immigration in the country. Um, and the city of Olympia was really fast on jumping on this resolution. It happened December 13th of 2016. 
right? But if you're wondering why they acted so quickly, I really credit Eileen Yoshina, who was the former diversity director at SPSCC, her staff and students, because they started thinking about Sanctuary in Olympia back, I think, as early as 2015, mm-hmm. right? Just thinking about what do we want, to, what message do we want to send to all residents of our community, not just immigrants, but everyone. So they were creating language, proposing language. When um, the election was taking place, Eileen um, contacted my office and we wrote a proposal uh, about so it happened very quickly, and I really do credit her for having, you know, the the foresight that this was coming and we needed to, to do something. Um, and so the, the resolution basically states that the city will service all residents. They're not going to inquire into residents' immigration status. That's why the police department stopped asking about uh, place of birth and nationality when folks are fingerprinted. Um, and they would not enter into any agreements with federal immigration authorities to carry out immigration enforcement in the city. That does not mean that the city will interfere with federal immigration enforcement, right? ICE will be in our communities. It does not mean they cannot come into community. We're not doing anything illegal. Uh, We are simply saying we are not going to facilitate and participate as a city. Uh, We've had some incredibly dedicated, forward-thinking City council members, so Jessica Bateman, Clark Gilman were two that I'd like to mention. Um, And following the reading of the resolution that night on December 13th, 2016, following the reading of that resolution, Jessica Bateman came out into the audience. And there were a group of us that had provided statements in support of the resolution. We didn't know each other. We were just kind of standing around. And she said, now make sure it has teeth right? Mm -hmm. Make sure this resolution has teeth and it's not just a piece of paper, a feel-good moment. Yes, yes. And that (laughs) night was the birth of Strengthening Sanctuary. And so um, this is a group of volunteers who work tirelessly to see that immigrants in our community feel safe and indeed are safe to the best of our ability. So some of the things that this group does is um, we provide Know Your Rights presentations. Alejandro just mentioned that the Constitution applies to immigrants. uh, It applies to anyone on the soil of the United States. And we make sure that folks know that they do not have to say their country of birth. They do not have to say their immigration status if they're stopped by law enforcement, be it federal or local. Um, And that this is um, their first line of protection against deportation. We have members involved with advocating for legislation. Keep Washington working was something that we um, advocated for many members tirelessly and, you know, provided testimony, made lots of calls, wrote lots of emails. Um, We're a fixture in the legislature. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And again, we've been meeting with uh, law enforcement, like I said, to make sure their, their procedures and policies don't have the unintended or intentional negative impact on immigrants. We have a group working with communities of faith towards offering physical sanctuary, which Alejandro will talk about in a little bit, uh, with the Temple Beth Hatfilo and their their sanctuary. Um, we also have an education group that I cannot say enough about, but um, they offer workshop, workshops, support materials to school staff, teachers, and administrators. It's an incredibly dynamic and productive group. They've done some amazing things. We have people who write letters to the editor, Bob Ziegler. Shout out to him. And we have members um, reaching out to other groups in an effort to build coalition, to partner with these groups so that we are more impactful and influential or effective in our work. The last thing I guess I should mention, and maybe I should have mentioned it with the courthouse, because of that individual who was arrested at the courthouse, we have a new group. Uh, It's called the Accompaniment Program. And this, there have been 20 to 30, 25, maybe 30 volunteers now who've been trained to accompany accompany immigrants to their courthouse hearings or to file protective orders or whatever the reason is that they're going to a courthouse. They now can work with the Washington Immigrant Network Solidarity Group who will contact the accompaniment program with Strengthening Sanctuary and three to... Five individuals will go with that person to the courthouse, and they've been trained how to surround but not impede an arrest, how to surround the individual, remind them of their rights if ICE shows up, mm-hmm. but how not to not get in the way and impede an arrest because we don't want to do that. And record. You have a recorder. You have a reminder of rights. You have someone who's negotiating with ICE from a distance in a very respectful way, and it's just a way to keep ICE from fishing because, again, when ICE goes to a courthouse – 
like what's happening in Grant County, they don't know the immigration status of those folks many, many times. They just see that there's someone with the surname Rodriguez Hernandez. And so they say, Mr. Rodriguez Hernandez, because the ICE officer's in the courthouse, maybe there's a, a DUI hearing. And they hear the person's name, and then they say, come here, I want to talk to you. And Mr. Rodriguez Hernandez thinks that something's up, goes over. And they say, what country are you from? What's your immigration status? And here are these you know, three, four ICE officers, and they feel like they have to give them that information, and they arrest them. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have an accompaniment team with you saying, you don't have to say that, don't answer that question. Do you have a warrant for their arrest? They don't have to answer those questions, and we're going to accompany, accompany them into the courthouse and out of the courthouse. So we have that new program as a result of what, what happened in June. A person at the risk of deportation has taken sanctuary at Temple Beth Hatfilo in downtown Olympia. What does it mean for someone to receive sanctuary at a place of worship? In this case, it means that she is basically protected because the temple is a sensitive location. Um, they would hardly would go. I mean, it's not say, we're not saying that it wouldn't happen if they wanted to, right? If ICE can show up, but... Uh, because it's a sensitive location, then it's more more uh, more it's more possible that it won't happen. Because of that memorandum of understanding exactly. that because, was talked about earlier. Okay. Right. Um, so part of the part of being in a sanctuary is uh, the fact that it's going to be public, and you know, m- more likely, I doesn't want to do anything that is going to cause the public to be outraged, or you know, mm-hmm. um, at least in our community, I feel like that's true. I remember I grew up. I mean, this is going to surprise nobody, but I grew up Catholic, and I remember one of our one of our per, uh, parishioners. Um, his posting before was at a church in Wilmington, Delaware, where they basically kept their basement operating mm-hmm. as a place where undocumented immigrants could wow, stay in sanctuary, and it was a strategy by that archdiocese to keep immigrants. And, and it didn't wow. occur to me until literally this moment that there was a legal strategy behind that. Is this in the eighties? Uh, he was he served there in the 80s, yeah. but uh, yeah, this, he yeah. was my parish priest in the 90s. Right, but yeah, right, he, had, right. he had left that posting. Right. Yes, that's when we saw strang- uh, sanctuary at its strongest, I think, in this country was in the, the 80s. 80s. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so, the, so it is a sanctuary, right? It's, it's a sanctuary for this family. There's a mother and a child. It happened part of is the Strengthening Sanctuary group had a, a faith community group. And so several faiths, churches had been working on it for like a year or two. Mm-hmm. And finally they were able to, uh, the, the temple decided that they were going to step forward and and have that responsibility. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's a big responsibility and all, there are people working tirelessly to, to uh, keep, this family together, and and um, it's a community effort. I think in many ways, it's one. I think is one of the great things that has come up from from this whole thing. This this uh, Trump administration's uh, policies that there are so many people coming together, not only not meeting each other and doing something for the community, but I think that as a bigger community, uh, we are um, seeing the best of us. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. best of uh, people. Uh, and we are very grateful to to the community, to the temple, um, mm-hmm. the people th- that they agree because it's a it's a difficult process to decide as a as a community. You know, it, it's a big responsibility, and there were a lot of legal uh, hurdles that they had to go through and decide, and and so, uh, but they they made it possible. So and it has to be public. It has mm-hmm. to be very very public, right? You can't hide people in your church basement. You have to say, I am a sanctuary site because you could then be charged with harboring undocumented folks. So you oh, have to wow. be very public about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that takes that takes a lot for a community, right. a, a faith-based community to say, we're willing. So it's not a publicity stunt. It no. is legal no. protection. It is absolutely legal protection. It. Got yes, it. yes, 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 absolutely. Got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, there, everything has uh, everything. There is a, a lot of legal issues that come up, and, mm-hmm. and that they had to really think about, talk about, and decide what the risk that you know they're gonna take. And mm-hmm. and so when you when they train their people to be there, there's also you have to know what you can say and what you can't say, and it's it's a whole process. And it's a lot of work, so it's we're grateful. Good. Awesome. Well, um, let's talk a bit about Cielo. Cielo has been around a lot longer than the Trump presidency. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, tell us about what kind of services that Cielo offers yes, for people. So, and, um, and also if you've seen an increase in the, the need for your services. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, we actually have been around since uh, 1996. So it's almost 26, 27 years, 26 years. Um, we have uh, the educational program. It, it's, it's, it's a lot of advocacy also in the programs. One of the things that we're doing is we're working with the school districts to be able to go and help parents navigate the system, like teach them how to do, how to skyward, you know, teach them how to... How to help Skyward their children. is the the online system for system schools. For school. Just just for yes. our listeners, not everybody's yes, got a kid. Yes, thank you. Yes. Oh, I know Skyward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, which you know, if you you know that it's not easy, yeah. you know. No, like, it's not. Oh my God, so, no. Not so think, oh, right? So think if you are. Uh, a, a person who doesn't really speak the language well, or even if you do, sometimes that's difficult. So helping yeah. parents navigate the system, one-on-one mm -hmm. uh, -on -one tutoring. We do classes for, for people who are going to learn how to write and read for the first time. We help people get their GEDs, and we do a lot. Most of our programs are done with volunteers. So volunteers are helping us make it, make these contributions happen. So it, so we help kids with one-on-one uh, -on -one tutoring from K to 12. Uh, we also have ELL classes, computer classes. EL. ELL. English oh. learners. Like, uh, so, yeah, so basically just teaching English. Okay, but but if, you are, if you're in the school district, if you're, uh, you know, maybe in sixth grade, whatever, then you get ELL classes. So they are focused... To, to, that, to that specific way or courses, you know, where help them with their own classes in school, I guess. That's yeah. part of it. Uh, we have mental health services. And this year is actually, it's a new program. And so we are very excited to, to have this program. We are partnering with uh, Evergreen College and UW and um, St. Martin's University. And so that there, there are students that are doing their practicum come to Cielo and they, um, they provide services for counseling or social services for, for, uh, for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. If you're undocumented, you also don't receive anything from the state. You don't receive any benefits. So if you need mental health services, but you don't have documents, you can go through DSHS, for example. There's people who need services that can't afford it and we provide the services for, for people. But also, obviously, we do for people who need a referral to us because what the services that we offer are bilingual and bicultural. So our therapist speaks Spanish and they're typically from or know the cultures yeah. from Latin America. Or, so it's um, familiar to go visit them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, like you said, the familiarity and just being in your own language. It's not You don't have an interpreter, but you are seeing this person this person within your own languages yeah and also we have the advocacy for victims of crime we have another place in shelton a satellite office in shelton that does a lot of work with the guatemalan community we have two people that or three that speak the um, language two languages that are what mom in kitchen sure. i think it's i'm, I'm yeah. sorry i mm. might not be pronounced that correctly but so we, we have people that are serving the community in their own languages. These are the basic programs that we that we we offer at Cielo, the services, and we have grown quite a bit from two years ago. We are the only organization in the South Sound to provide the services too. So we serve people not only in Olympia but Shelton, um, even people from Aberdeen come all the way from Aberdeen to to have our services. And you do citizenship classes, right? Did you say yes. that? Yes. Oh, and I didn't say it. Yeah. We do have citizenship classes also to help folks prepare for the naturalization, for naturalization. interview. Yes, and we hold sometimes we hold uh, legal clinics, and we're having our big fundraiser in November. Yeah, oh, November yeah. 9th, right? Ah, yes. Yeah, there you go. Yes. So, so that's so going to be great. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about the fundraiser? Yes, it's it's gonna be, it's called Noche de Gala this year. Most other years, it has been Dia de los Muertos. We had a big celebration, but this year we some people were not feeling very good about you know having that day for some people as a sacred day or mm -hmm. so it was a little controversial. So we decided that we were going to have our fundraiser separate from Dia de los Muertos, which there's gonna be a Dia de los Muertos celebration at Cielo, but it's not going to be the gala. It's going to be just for the community and everybody's invited to go. And I believe it's November 1st. So the gala is going to be November 9th, Saturday, and it's going to be uh, about cultures. That, so we wanted to we wanted to celebrate the cultures that people that come to 
to our clients, the people that come to Cielo. So it's going to be, there's going to be countries represented. So tables, instead of having uh, a number, is going to be a country. And then you'll have little information about the country. And we also are going to have international food from these other countries. And we are uh, hire uh, Latino businesses to help us get these gala ready. And it's, I we have, I get the name of the DJ. He, he's great. He's, uh, last year it was great from Seattle. So this is, is our biggest fundraiser and we um, are very excited about it and hope that people come. Yeah. So what else can people do to support Cielo? Volunteer. We are always in need of volunteer. You don't need to speak Spanish to volunteer because that's how we actually survive. We have people so through volunteers. We have a new website, so if you want to go to the website and check it out. What's um, the website address? So it's cieloprograms.org. You can also donate. We, you know, obviously we are a nonprofit, so everything, it's uh, donations and we, it's, it's community. People come to Cielo because they love community and is enriching each other, you know, for... Thank right. you. Any final thoughts you all have that you'd like to share before we close out here? Well, thank you for this opportunity to kind of bring to light some of the um, issues with the invisible wall, with the tension, the Yakima flights, letting folks know more about Cielo, which is a really important organization in our community. Yes, thank you for thank you for bringing this topic and talking about it and um, sharing light to what that misinformation sometimes that is out there about issues and um, having people understand how difficult, the difficulties that families are going through just because, you know, you are one or, you know, you might not be documented and life is different when yeah that mm-hmm. is happening. So thank you for bringing that. Well, thank you both for coming on the show and thanks for all of the work that you do. This has been the Olympia Standard. You know, we really enjoy this show. We really enjoy doing it, but we also enjoy your feedback. So you can give us an email at theolympiastandard at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, uh, The Olympia Standard, or uh, on Twitter, at The Only Standard. Man, whenever I feel like it. Yeah, right. Uh, And we also, uh, you know, we hang out on the Olympia subreddit if you want to, you know, come talk about some stuff there. Just going to have to guess what our alts are. (laughs) You say that every time. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We are produced by the two best friends who are behind Olympia Pop Rocks. Jimmy Joe plays Minecraft while we're talking. And his best friend, his best friend, Guire McGuire, uh, did our music. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.